After enduring months of stalking and threats, Peggy Clinky moved to another state to escape her stalker. Armed with only a less than effective protective order, her stalker was able to track her down and travel across state lines with a gun. Her story and her sister's advocacy has pushed stalking legislation forward, but a recent Supreme Court case shows us we all still have so far to go. This week's episode is The Stalking and Murder of Peggy Clinky, Part 2. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I'm gonna kill you. We've received a lot of great feedback about this episode. Great feedback feels weird to say because it's such a heinous topic. But people, I wish that we uh, could share all of the stories that people share with us just to show how insidious and persistent stalking can be and also how common like yeah it's wild how many people out there have so many from like yeah he stopped me for like a couple weeks after we broke up to like a lifetime of it yeah and and underreported and that's something mm-hmm. we'll get to towards the the latter half of this episode when we start discussing some of the laws and how they've developed but even with the statistics that we have on on stalking There have been so many people who, like myself, whenever we finished our conversation with Dana and Debbie last week, I was like, oh, I was stalked. You know, like you, because you tend to use language that's minimizing of like, oh, Mm -hmm. I just dated this crazy person once. Or he was kind of a little weird after we dated. But you realize these behaviors actually fall under a legal definition. And so because it, it disproportionately impacts women and we have sort of been taught at least, you know, our my generation and older of Mm -hmm. like, don't take up space. Don't really just like don't make a big deal out of it. Could you just not mention it? We tend to be like, it's fine. It's I'm fine. It's totally fine. And for our own preservation and safety. True, that too. Yeah. What if I had, you know, you go like, if I reported it, is it going to make it worse? And in some cases, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. You have the absolute right to report this and to handle it however you want. But just given what we know, the statistics of what's already been reported, there have been so many comments, emails sent to us and stuff of like, I thank you for covering this because I didn't even realize. Mm-hmm. And now to be able to claim it and name it, you can hopefully move past it. You know, hopefully it has ceased and you can move past it. But that is the value of storytelling and story mm-hmm. sharing. So we're very, very pleased that we got this opportunity to to meet and know Debbie Riddle, who's uh, incredible. Absolutely. And Dana Flightman, too. Oh, absolutely. They are just both incredible people. Debbie, her the love a sister has for another sister. We've seen it in many other cases that they're the ones that until she takes her last breath, she'll be fighting Peggy's fight. And it's just uh, a love that is like overwhelming. It's Mm -hmm. beautiful to see, but at the same time, it's so sad that, she's in a position where she has to do this because she lost her sister. Right. You're like, as much good as you do, you kind of still miss mm-hmm. that empty seat at the at the Christmas dinner table, you know, where Absolutely. like somebody should be here. And because of a, a horrible, heinous act by this man, she is unfortunately not. Yes. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and do so. So you have all the 
information on what led up to what we will be discussing in this episode. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. On August 29th, 2002, Peggy asked police in her new hometown of Turlock, California, whether her restraining order against Patrick from New Mexico was valid across state lines. Turlock police checked the national database where the order should have been filed, but found nothing. Unfortunately for Peggy, the kind of order she had received would not have been entered. Rather than a domestic violence protective order, Peggy had been granted a mutual protective order without a hearing held. Because she was not given the opportunity to testify during the initial proceedings, the restraining order she got was not the strongest type available. In order to get a new protective order in California, Patrick would have to be served with papers from Turlock authorities, letting him know where Peggy had moved. For her safety, Peggy opted not to proceed. You can see this kind of rock in a hard place, a crack that you fall into of, oh, well, actually, sorry, because of paperwork, you're not protected. And already how the laws are not designed to protect the victims. In fact, mm-hmm. she's now put in the position of, well, do I want to keep myself safer, maybe, and reveal my location, which in turn makes me not safer, or am I just going to roll the dice here? Like she, The onus should not be on the victim to have to make these decisions. Lawmakers should have laws that protect them, regardless of where they travel, from their stalkers without having to alert their stalker that they've moved. Yeah, and I, I hate to play you know Monday morning quarterback, but from a client advocacy perspective, Peggy's attorney should have said, I'm sorry, Your Honor, we cannot agree to a mutual protective order without a hearing. We have like 16 binders full of stuff and we need to Mm -hmm. show Your Honor that he has no evidence of what he's talking about. From Peggy's perspective as a client, she may have said, hey, I don't really want to proceed. But in nine times out of 10, if you were to tell especially somebody who had been through as much as Peggy, hey, you are going to have to face him in court. However, the result is going to be X or you you don't face him in court and the protective order you're going to get is like 50% as powerful. It's not mm-hmm. going to be in a national database. It's not going to show up when he travels across state lines and try to check a gun. What do you want to do? And if your client says, oh, you know what? I understand it's going to be a weaker one, but I really just can't face him. That's the client's choice. But to sort of go, shh, 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 uh, we'll just do this. Mm-hmm. It's going to be faster and easier. And, and for all, especially the fact that Peggy could even afford to have an attorney, you know, that it's you see that there's so many barriers to vulnerable people when they, they need to be fully informed and have a victim's advocate going, hey, your attorney can tell you this, but I just want you to know the if you ever need a restraining order, where are you moving to? California? Let's look the laws up really quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd have to tell them where you lived. You know, it's like the client has got to be made aware of the, the consequences of what they're agreeing to. Absolutely. And she may not have wanted to do that because she had been dealing with it for so long. And also then you're pissing them off more and dragging your family through more stuff. And I mean, it's always the client's decision. I don't think she was given all of the information to make a fully informed decision. And it sounds, yeah, from our conversation with Debbie, it did sound like that Peggy thought, oh, a protective order. I got Mm -hmm. one and was not informed. This one is weak in these ways. I didn't even know that there was a difference in the types that you could get until this. So, yeah. And it varies from state to state, too, which is the, the difficult thing and is why so it's so important for victims of this to have competent counsel and victims advocates. Mm-hmm. 
Indeed, Peggy and her family were so concerned Patrick would find her in Turlock that they intentionally kept Peggy's location a secret when speaking on the phone with her. The family feared that if Patrick couldn't reach Peggy to kill her, he may target their mom. Out of extra caution, Peggy's mom reactivated an old security system at her home. Debbie told interviewers that checking the neighborhood for strange cars became the norm and that she constantly feared for the safety of her children, saying, I watched my girls like a hawk and kept our doors and windows locked at all times. Just hypervigilant. You have to be. And it's we see the ripple effect of it's not just the direct target that Mm -hmm. is being impacted by this, but immediate family. Now the children of the, you know, her nieces and everything. And Peggy's fear that if I'm trying to protect myself, then he might go to my mom Mm -hmm. because he can't get to me. And, you know, then again, the onus is on the victim of like, well, would I rather him kill me or my mom? Because he's probably going to get to one of us and I'm trying to keep somebody safe mm-hmm. and it shouldn't be like that. Yeah. And it's, it is a drag on your emotional well being, your time, your resources. You're now having to pay for a security system you wouldn't already pay for. Mm-hmm. So you do see that the ripple effect is not just the physical, emotional, and financial toll it takes on the victim, but then also their families. And mm-hmm. it's to, to see the response we're going to see from law enforcement to an insidious crime that is wide reaching is maddening and frustrating, to say the least. The family's fears escalated after Peggy's mom received a disturbing package in the mail. It was a large Ziploc bag containing pictures of Peggy, one she had been forced to leave behind when she fled the home she shared with Patrick. Patrick had filled the plastic bag with water, forever ruining the pictures. Most alarming, though, was that the return address on the package was Mark's address, Peggy's boyfriend, the Patrick, was also stalking, and the postmark was from San Jose, California. Debbie said the family was terrified, realizing that Patrick was honing in on where Peggy was living. And you see, this is not, I'm going to kill you, but it is tacitly saying, I, I'm still around thinking about you and I want to destroy you, your face, your fa-, you know, that feeling of destruction of like her actual visage, but then also writing down Mark's Albuquerque address and having it postmarked from San Jose, which is the nearest airport to where she's living. That's two ways to say, no matter what state you're in, I know where you're at. Mm-hmm. And the threat of, I'm coming for you. Mm-hmm. I'm getting closer. Yeah, I'm not afraid to uh, scare your mom, make her upset, any mm-hmm. of your family. And the San Jose, seeing that is, oh, it makes sickening. my stomach hurt to think how it's, I mean, it's like a fucking Lifetime movie. You look down, you're like, oh my God, he's found her. Or at mm-hmm. least he, he's close, you know, I mean, he's getting closer at the very mm-hmm. least. At least to the metro area where she's mm-hmm. at, which means that's she's just driving on a highway the wrong day and he pa- might pass her. I mean, that gives yeah. you, that makes you not want to leave your house. Yeah. It was glaringly apparent that no type of order of protection was going to stop Patrick from terrorizing Peggy and her family. While celebrating Thanksgiving in Ohio, Peggy's sister Debbie, who was visiting at their mother's house with their young daughters, received a heart-dropping phone call from Patrick. Debbie recalled, He said, I know where she's at, and in 10 minutes, she'll be dead. A terrified Debbie told the girls and her mom to hide, afraid that Patrick could be near them. Debbie called Albuquerque police to have them go to Mark's house, where Peggy was staying for a brief holiday visit back in New Mexico. 
Peggy then called the Albuquerque district attorney in charge of her case to add the death threat to her file. When the prosecutor answered Peggy's call, he laughed and said, Oh, oh wow, you're still alive? An angry Peggy replied, Is it going to take a bullet in my head for you to do anything? Unfortunately for Peggy, the prosecutor did not inform the court that had issued the protective order about Patrick's most recent threat. He also failed to tell Peggy that she needed to contact them. In a later interview, the prosecutor said that because Patrick threatened her family in Ohio rather than Peggy directly, it didn't count as a violation. However, the judicial officer who granted the order, Loretta Lopez, told reporters after Peggy's death, It might not have been a charge police would have arrested him for, but it may have been a technical violation such as indirect contact. But we shouldn't focus on woulda, coulda, shoulda. It won't serve anyone any good. The order needs to be used effectively and people need to know what to do. This article in the Albuquerque News Journal within like days of her passing was some of the most buck passing I've ever read in my life. The prosecutor was like, no, it it actually wouldn't have counted. And she's like, it would have. And then realized, oh, what have I just said? And then Mm. was like, but we, we shouldn't focus on that. I'm like, because you're liable. You're liable for this woman's murder. Yeah, I think you are. Everyone is saying the quiet parts out loud. Yeah. And when they say it out loud, they realize, oh, yikes. When we say this, it actually, okay, now, now we get it. Yeah. Any prosecutor that takes this so lightly, regard I, I don't care how this was delivered, it's inappropriate, unprofessional, Mm-mm. and horrifying to say, oh, wow, you're still alive? Yeah. In, and this is in January or no, uh, November of 2002. Mm-hmm. I have some bad news. Uh, some people are still laughing about this in 2023 that mm-hmm. are in uh, our law enforcement and judicial system. But you're right. It's extremely unprofessional, but it shows that minimization. And as Debbie called her sister, small but mighty. Peggy was mm-hmm. small but mighty and had at least had that oomph to be like, I'm going to fight back on this. Think of the thousands and thousands and thousands of stalking victims that are so defeated. And they're like, well, he laughed at me, so I don't even need to continue on mm-hmm. in this. You know, she's fu- she has that oomph to fight and not everybody even is blessed with that Mm -hmm. and to have the person who you think is about to take your stalker to trial laugh at you like "Ugh, i'm gonna have to take this to trial you're still alive (laughs) go quit your job you are a sick person i hope that they are no longer in that role yeah, and should have, honestly, all, everyone should have been sued. It doesn't bring anyone yeah. back, but no. then you ha- get into the issues of qualified immunity and are they acting? It's it's negligent. It's sick. In this case, it's willful. Like you know that she's in danger and you. She's left. being threatened actively. Yes. Yeah, yes. she's receiving death threats and you're taking them lightly. It it Terrible. makes no sense and it's like you said, just maddening. When you see there were so many steps along the way where. She was failed. Law enforcement failed her. She was doing everything she should have been doing, reporting everything, and they just didn't give a shit. Laughed in in her face over the phone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sinisterhood will be right back. The trial date for Patrick's criminal stalking case continued to be pushed back again and again. First from September to October, then finally to January 24th, 2003. During that time, Patrick had hired a private investigator in New Mexico. 
That man used legally obtained computer records to find that Peggy was living in Turlock. On January 16, 2003, Patrick flew from New Mexico to the San Jose airport with a handgun and hunting rifle in his checked luggage. He drove a rental car to Turlock. On the street near Peggy's condo, he posed as a private investigator and was able to obtain information from a delivery truck driver as to Peggy's exact location. It was just six days before the stalking trial was set to begin. Two, I mean, this makes me incredibly frustrated that a private investigator would not do due diligence on his own client to see that his client is a dangerous person. As Debbie told us in her interview, Patrick didn't even pay this guy. So he's like, I'm not going to give you the exact address, but mm-hmm. I'll give you a str- like a, a neighborhood or a town. Which was enough. It's enough. And it's, again, that's, to me, you are now liable for what happened next. You're all contributorily liable for what's happening. And the fact that the protective order was not filed in the national database, when he goes to check his guns at the airport, nothing pops up. There's no stopping him or anything like that from traveling across state lines. And then this delivery driver who just got pressured and pressured by Patrick's charm. It is, like I said, why I, unless it is from a agency, you know, sheriff's office, police office, I, I'm not giving information. And even then, I might not. I'm not giving information to anybody. You could tell me you're a private investigator all day long. I don't care. I don't know if that person wants to be found and what you're going to mm-hmm. do to them when you find them. So not my business. He'd also tried to get her address from the moving company, posing as a police officer, and calling the moving company and telling the woman, oh, we we have some of her stuff still. So I just wanted to get it back to her. And that lady was like, nah, this doesn't sound right. Mm-mm. And called Peggy to say, hey, this just happened. And she said, I don't have any missing items. I have a stalker. His name is Patrick Kennedy. So a woman yeah. hears that call and is like, oh, huge red flag this doesn't sound right if you in like also he was like when she wouldn't give him the address he's like oh okay never mind and debbie told us in your interview like what cop would behave that way just like give it up it's the first sign of like you know i mean it just but it didn't matter because he got to this delivery driver and i charm or just persistence to where you're like i need this yeah obnoxious like i need this guy out of my fucking way i got stuff to do but he the did fact her dirty. He, and he, he did made, but Debbie said Patrick had made these business cards, like a fake yeah. private investigator business cards. That is the length to which he was willing to go to carry this out. I mean, this is It was a total persona. Yes. Yeah, like a character. It was his entire life. His, his existence was just trying to hunt her down and creating this elaborate scheme in order to do so. It is the, what the experts say. It's homicide in slow motion. And like mm-hmm. we were saying in the last episode, when you go, you know, you have this plan and then what? And for stalkers, the and then what is a blank, kind of a blank answer up until they have escalated to this point. And the and then what is homicide? Yeah. On a Saturday morning, January 18th, 2003, at her condo complex off Colorado Avenue in Turlock, California, Peggy was getting ready to do laundry and meet her neighbor, Rachel, for coffee. She put her laundry down on the counter and then headed to the garage where her worst nightmare came true. Patrick was there hiding. He chased her through her condo as she tried to run. After catching up to her, 
He duct taped her mouth and hands, choked her, and beat her with his fist and gun so severely that her blonde hair turned red with blood. Described as small but mighty, Peggy managed to get up and run out of her front door where Rachel was waiting to meet her. The women then fled together to Rachel's apartment. Rachel tried to barricade the door before they ran together to hide in the bedroom closet upstairs. A frantic Peggy called 911 at 9.10 a.m. and explained, I have a stalker. He's here to kill me. He's already beaten me up and taped me. He's in my house. When the operator asked who the assailant was, Peggy told them, Patrick Kennedy. He's beaten me up with a gun. He's trying to break in now. She then issued a chilling warning. If you don't get here, he's going to kill both of us. The 911 call is absolutely heartbreaking. The um, calm resolution in her voice of this is it is yeah. just, it's so sad. I mean, she's, she's very calm. She's very just like to the point, to the point she, you know, I mean, she's doing everything she can to maintain. And that probably comes from years of having to do that. Yeah. That you have that plan in your head, whether it's uh, the initial just anxiety, thinking about it over and over, or mm -hmm. actually making a, a plan of what I would do. But you have visualized, I'm sure, and lived this a thousand times in your yeah. head. Yeah. And like Debbie said in our interview with her, imagine Rachel, who is at the door to uh, about to knock like, like, hey, you ready to go get coffee? And Peggy comes running out just covered in blood, a huge head wound. Mm -hmm. And it's like, he's here. He's found me. And they just Get, go run into there. Yeah. So now, you know, I'm sure Peggy's distraught that her friend is now being involved. Yeah. And that's the, the more onus that happens on stalking victims of again. Well, now you have to keep the people around you safe. What do you mm -hmm. say? Like, well, we could go to coffee, but well, we have to be sure first that my stalker isn't here. I mean, you can't enjoy it's a morning that any of us would want to have yeah. on a Saturday morning, getting your chores done, see your buddy, have a kind of a relaxing day. And instead, you're on the phone with 911 saying, get here now or he is going to kill me and my friend. Yeah. Peggy asked repeatedly how close officers were, explaining that not only was her hair sopping wet with blood, but that Patrick had broken into the neighbor's unit despite their best attempts to keep him out. As the 911 operator urged her to stay on the line, Peggy can be heard addressing her stalker. Patrick, I'm the only one here. Apparently in an attempt to protect her friend who remained hidden in the closet, a man's voice can be heard calmly saying, Hang that up. Peggy told him in a calm, strong voice, Stop it. Please stop it. She then explained to the operator, I have to go. He's going to kill me. The line then went dead. Five officers were on the scene within five minutes. They searched the second apartment where Peggy had been hiding with Rachel. Patrick had shattered Rachel's sliding glass door and headed upstairs, locking himself in the bedroom with Peggy. The SWAT team stood on the outside of the closed bedroom door. Having realized Rachel was hiding in the closet, Patrick made the decision to let her leave. When the door opened for her to exit... Patrick fired at the SWAT team, missing one officer by about two feet. I think it's kind of telling in a haunting way that he let Rachel go. I mean, thank God he did. 
he was only there for Peggy. Yeah, and it and was this end game himself. for him. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. he knew what he was there to do. I don't think you travel across uh, state lines with two guns and have gone to the links to find the person you've been looking for this whole time, not knowing like how this is going to end for both yeah. of you. And and with the duct tape, you know, bringing tape, to waiting, hiding, wait, lying in wait, hiding in the garage, waiting for mm-hmm. her, things like that. Tell you, he's he wasn't showing up to to talk at all. No, and like you said, when I think the the shooting at the officers was. He, he just didn't want them to come in there and interrupt what he had planned out in his head. I don't know that, you know, again, Monday morning quarterback, I think Peggy was saying to them, if you come in here, he will kill me. But uh, it's also very chilling that all this went down with five SWAT officers on the other side of the door. Yeah, it's um, it's hard to wrap your head around that something this heinous can happen when the people that are supposed to protect you are just feet away and And full gear. Yeah. 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 And that it's somehow when that door opened and Rachel left that they couldn't get a shot off. But I mean, I'm sure they were doing everything they could to, uh, you know, keep Peggy safe and take them both alive, but it's just not, how it worked out. Yeah. And the domestic violence calls are some of the most dangerous calls for police officers. And that is evidenced here. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, he's, he was laser focused on her, but was still willing to put them in danger too. Yeah. Yeah. When the door closed again, officers tried addressing Patrick and reasoning with him. He made no response and remained laser focused on Peggy who cowered underneath him as he held a gun to her head. On the other side of the door, officers heard Peggy's voice. She told them that Patrick had a gun to her head, and if they entered, he would kill her. The police officer said, Let's not talk about that, Peggy. Let's talk about your family. In a calm voice, Peggy asked the police to do three things. Tell my mother that I love her. Tell my niece that she'll have a guardian angel watching over her in heaven. And tell my sister, who's pregnant, to name her baby after me. Police then heard two shots from behind the door. Patrick shot Peggy in the back of the head before turning the gun on himself. She was 32 years old. It's uh, probably another, you know, she she knew in those moments, like she'd already planned out what she kind of wanted her last wishes to be. Which is such a heinous thing to have to plan out in advance. Oh, yeah. To have the, the fact that you had that resolute like resolve of like this is happening and yeah. um at least i can deliver this message to my family mm-hmm. and the the helplessness of those officers i'm sure on the other side because you have the victim saying if you come in here he'll kill me and it's like if you l- don't come in here he'll kill me if you arrest him and put him in jail and he gets out of jail he might kill me and that is that just shows this kind of persistence until yeah the this homicide in slow motion and we the the thing about it is like this was the natural conclusion of the lack of action on the part of so many people despite the perfect action on peggy's behalf like she on her part like she did literally everything right but not having that the support system and the the around her it's exactly what is it going to take a bullet in my head for you to do something and that prosecutor that laughed 
I, I really yeah. hope he rethought all that. I mean, he was trying yeah. to cover his ass in articles afterwards. So I don't know that it affected him too much. Yeah. To For the cop to say, like, let's not talk about that. It almost makes me think that they knew how this was going to end. We're Unfortunately, they, you know, if they went in, she was going, they knew he was going to shoot her and to shoot through the door and not, you know, I mean, you're just blindly shooting. You could hurt mm-hmm. her. I don't, depending on where they were positioned in the room, mm-hmm. but to be on the other side as the SWAT officers and think, I don't think we can save this person. It's right. just a horror that I can't imagine. And again, that ripple effect of like these men think about this all the time too. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like the, even though that's their job to yeah. be there, like, you know, that somebody is in such distress, their life is literally about to be over and you can't do anything and your job is to help them and you feel powerless. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, through your training, you know, if you have a hostage situation, a domestic violence hostage situation, and the assailant is non-responsive and the victim is describing that he is in a kill position. I mean, I'm sure that it's, you know, whatever is in their training, but uh, the, at least trying to comfort her uh, at the end of like, let's talk about your family or try to, you know, distract from it. Yeah, the um, the nine one one call, and I don't often listen to nine one one calls, but I did listen to this one. And the the resolute when she says, "I have to go," he's going to kill me. Is just so like she she knows, you know, and and that fear of you're like it's finally happening. Like I this is this is how it's going to end, and like you can't call anyone. You don't, ha- you know, I mean, it's, uh, it just haunts me to think of someone knowing that like they're about to die. Yeah. It's you're in this, the slow motion homicide and mm-hmm. then the it's happening now the, your brain almost goes into kind of like we, we joke that whenever we're in uh, a crazy situation, you become very like, do like when we were in my car and there was an mm-hmm. accident happening, you were like, hit your brakes, not too fast, move to the next lane over like that. She's been traumatized so much that the response in the actual heightened moment is like, get Rachel out, get this message to my family. And it's so unfair that not only was her life taken quite literally, but the time proceeding up to that, so much of her life was eaten up and taken that she had to have this, like that she was ready to kind of shift into this, like the the 911 call is haunting when she says that of like, I've got to go. He's going to kill me now. Mm -hmm. It's not like, Oh my God, he's going to kill me now. It's like, well, this is happening now. It's been decided. And I think like to your point of, everything leading up to this, she knows that like, he's not, this isn't a threat. Like he's there to finish this once and for all. And I honestly, I wonder when she said he's going to kill us both, if she was talking about Rachel or her and himself, Yeah, because, you know, I mean, we don't know any type of conversation that transpired between them. You do hear him say, and it's so chilling on that 911 call in the background, just to hear him go, hang that up Mm -mm. like you're you're not getting out of this you know and also just the calmness in his voice yep too but also the this is this is happening this Mm -hmm. we're not 
we're not going to keep going back and forth. Like when he shows up and you've fled the state and he mm-hmm. shows up hiding in your garage, I keep, it reminds me of this movie that I can't, oh, was Gwyneth Paltrow in it? And she like moves and her stalker finds her and she pretends to be pregnant and it's a whole thing. But it, I just keep thinking of that scene where he finds her and she's like, this is it. You know, I mean, yeah. If if he's he's finally found me, and this is what we were all kind of hoping never happened, but we're preparing for. It's a week before the trial. He's not going to trial. Yeah, and that feeling that Debbie said they all kind of had of like, well, okay, it's only a few more days, and then he'll be in jail, yeah. and then we can finally breathe a sigh of relief for a minute, and not even knowing that it's he was counting those days down of like. I'm not going to jail. I'm not no. going to trial. I won't be in that courtroom. None of us are going to trial. No. Yeah. And wanting to control it. But it's like we talked about the Freaky Friday uh, story. One of them that f- the a person sent in about their mom being stalked of like racing down the road in this like car chase scenario mm-hmm. where you really are living a true life horror film that yeah. you have this person lying in wait, tying you up, smashing through a glass door that is like this unstoppable beast that without systems like the the entire criminal justice system they they're allowed to do i mean essentially allowed to do things like that the fact that he got on a plane with a gun to me is two guns mind-boggling yeah yeah rifle and a handgun and not to mention all of the things he's done to peggy that she's filed but he had an ex-wife that she filed seven different charges against him including and debbie said they didn't even find this out until after peggy had been killed but about any of the um, charges against him, which that's also mind-boggling that like yeah. somehow that wasn't revealed to her mm-hmm. from some law enforcement agent or a prosecutor or somebody. Like, how did nobody know that? But one, the last um, one that was filed on the back, he wrote, "He is stalking me," and underlined stalking oh, his, his ex-wife, ex-wife did, yeah. and said he is not going to be happy until he. Is he's either killed me or our young daughter. So and he had a predilection for decades that this is how he treated women in relationships. Mm-hmm, as owning, possessing. Yeah, and there's people aren't sharing information across state lines or the database. Things don't get entered and things that everyone should be aware of, nobody knows about. And if, if, yeah. if they had, they would have been like, or maybe, I don't know, maybe not, but at least... Peggy could have been more informed, you know what I mean? And her family, hopefully law enforcement would have done something, but I don't know. I can't say that that would have changed anything for them, sadly. No, but it shows you the need for having comprehensive reporting databases for people who engage in domestic violence because the statistics are so correlated Mm -hmm. from stalking to femicide and especially intimate partner stalking uh, domestic violence to eventual homicide. I mean, it's just it's so correlated that the people that engage in this type of behavior should be banned from having guns for like decades at a time. Like you get Mm -hmm. to prove what with your good behavior, why you think you just, you deserve this privilege of having a gun because it is such and the, um, the statistics of like when there's a gun involved that it's, it's so greater. So she just, that's why I think her story is so important. Mm Mm-hmm. Sinisterhood, we'll be right back. 
In Ohio later that night, Peggy's sister Debbie got the worst news of her life. The doorbell rang, and her first fear was Patrick may be on the other side. When she looked through and saw police officers were waiting, her heart sunk. She already knew. After opening the door, Debbie's first words to them were, Just tell me, did Patrick Kennedy kill my sister? The answer was sadly yes. Debbie later told interviewers that she just knew that her sister was gone. I wasn't surprised that this is how the road ended for her since nobody would do anything to protect her. Peggy's friend Marie in New Mexico, likewise, was prepared for the worse. Having seen firsthand how badly her friend had been stalked, when she received a call from Debbie, Marie told interviewers, I knew something had happened. I remember just screaming and crying. It's like, why kill her? But I think even in the end, he thought she belonged to him. And if he couldn't have her, no one could. I agree with that. And I also agree with Debbie that, I mean, they were all hoping that it wouldn't end like this. But at the same time, when you see two cops at your door, you're Late like, well, I, I, I'm horrified and saddened beyond belief. But unfortunately, I'm not that surprised because yeah. nobody did anything to help her. Yeah, it's that slow motion. It's like we've all been screaming. I literally just called mm -hmm. like a month ago, a month and a half ago, called Albuquerque police out because he threatened us while on a protective order and nobody did anything. And then Same. I know where she is. She's going to be dead in 10 minutes. Yeah. And did he was he talking about he knew she was at Mark's house? In Albuquerque, or was he talking about, I know where she lives in Turlock? It doesn't really matter mm -mm. because he showed and was showing even before he killed her that he had every intent to kill her. Yeah. And telling her that on the phone and yeah, the threats and showing her that he knew where she was and was getting closer. So mm -hmm. to see that, uh, and I think, yeah, Marie is absolutely right that it, it's this idea of possession control yeah. and that's the ultimate control. Yeah, I think as far as, you know, the and then what I think the then what for people like him is then we both die. Yeah. If you don't want to come back to me, then I'm going to kill win. you and I'm going to kill myself. And that's how it's all going to end. Yeah. And I decide when we do this. I mm -hmm. decide when it all happens. It's that that control element. And when you are doing all this completely unfettered by like any criminal repercussions, why yeah. wouldn't you think that you could do that? Yeah. When Peggy's boyfriend, Mark, was notified, he recalled to interviewers for Real Life, Real Crime how he punched a hole through the wall before collapsing and crying out over and over that he was sorry. Mark told interviewers, At that point, you just feel, I failed her, that the whole system failed her. You just feel powerless. In an interview with the Albuquerque Journal, Mark recalled how hard they had fought to protect Peggy and how no one would help them. We reported eight to 10 incidents and made literally hundreds of follow-up calls to authorities. No one ever followed up, though. I don't understand. No one understands. Yeah. There is no understanding this. They all fucked up, 
And her blood is literally on their hands. On all of their hands, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's in that Albuquerque Journal article, it says, well, local law enforcement said they did do things. And it was not at all true. I mean, it's again, it was that cat covering up shit on a tile floor mm-hmm. of like, well, uh, you know, we really shouldn't talk about could woulda, shoulda. It's like a woman is dead because of your failure to respond. And yeah. your fail. And as a judge, that judicial officer who's kind of said, oh, woulda, coulda, shoulda. At the bench, I think it, sh- it is incumbent upon jurists to go, before I grant this protective order, I need you to know X, Y, and Z about this. And then also, just so you know, this covers this behavior. These are how you contact and who you should contact. Mm-hmm. And, and you just see like... What else are you supposed to do in this situation? I mean, you know, with Mark, uh, he did everything he could. Moving houses, mm-hmm. trying to take care of her, having her move while he stayed behind. All of that, supporting her every single step of the way. And you're just like, what What else could I have done? What else could but I have done? But it's all stuff they're having to do yeah. because no one is helping them. And there's mm-hmm. not enough advocacy from law enforcement for victims of like, a handholding process of yeah. like, you know, someone that knows what you got to do, the pers- like a social worker, essentially yeah. of like, advocate. yeah, that this is, this is what you got to do. Let's get a plan in place. I mean, it shouldn't be up to you to be like, okay, well, I guess I got to Google how to keep myself safe from my stalker. You know mm-hmm. I mean? That's, it shouldn't be up to you to have to do that. The laws should be in place to protect the victim, not make it easier for this stalker to find her. Yeah, and you're right. And I think that's where Spark comes in with their training. Mm-hmm. And they train not only prosecutors, but they'll train like court staff, j- judges, like individualized trainings to say like, here is how your a stalking case is going to be presented to you. And here is where you can step in and find your part to play. It's like any problem in society at all. It's like no one person's going to solve everything. Mm-hmm. You have to find where can you reach and what can you do to affect change from your limit limited perspective, position, whatever. And that training to know specifically, hey, if you're a court clerk, make sure you tell the victim, yo, you need to get this many copies of it. Make sure you give it to this many places. And just say, you can make a difference in these cases so that we don't see so many people going, I don't know, it was kind of in the paperwork. So I guess you should have read it. It's like, I'm sorry, she can't read. She has 16 binders full of stuff. Like she's been reading. Okay. Somebody needs to step up. She's trying not to get killed she, yeah. her mind's kind of you know she's filled busy. with every, she's busy so how about you who this is your job mm-hmm. and you've been trained on what to do help somebody out e- everyone needs sensitivity training yeah uh, victim, victim training centered. yeah victim centered training in all mm-hmm. of these positions to where a different perspective that maybe they haven't heard before is is shown to them like agencies like spark that you know Mm -hmm. go in and show like real life people speaking to them of this happened to me like now look me in the face and tell me like you don't think i should have been helped yeah like you know really putting a face with name and framing it in a way of like we should all be more concerned about this it's not something that we should it's 2024 now which still doesn't fucking matter but even back then like women listen to women and believe them don't think that they are being 
dramatic or, you know, they're blowing Oof, things out of proportion. Guys. Yeah. Or mm. that's, well, I don't want to get involved. That's between them. No, she was begging for someone to get involved. So this didn't happen. Everyone that left her was begging for somebody to get involved. Yeah. And that's, the, I'm pleased to see that the training for not just criminal law enforcement, but also civil legal aid. When I worked at legal aid, a lot of our training and community outreach was to create a victim centered response and a multidisciplinary approach. So you do have social workers that can maybe mm -hmm. help you find new housing and can help you access victims compensation funds so you can pay for that new housing. I think, you know, here's how you change your address in a way that keeps it private. And here's a, a civil attorney that may be able to help you sue for whatever he's, you know, if any other way that you might want to address mm -hmm. it. And then also that trauma informed advocacy where you are not re-traumatizing the victim. So I'm yeah. glad to see not just Spark, but other organizations too. Some of the ones, I think it was Center for Counsel too, we talked to um, the folks from Hero Maker was one of yeah. their organizations where they go in and train law enforcement of like mindfulness and taking them out, this kind of de-escalation, victim advocacy. So I like that we are now applying what we know is effective in like cases of child abuse where you have these multidisciplinary centers and now, you know, you apply it to the abuse of seniors, domestic violence victims, people have endured stalking. And it's kind of like, well, it seems like all victims of crime would benefit from this. Yeah. It is bizarre how there's almost a um, hierarchy or a pecking order of of what pulls at people's heartstrings. In, yeah. And children are at the top. Certainly. So those laws are going to, you know, it's like, well, of course we need to protect children. And of course we do. But those same laws, it shouldn't be like when that child grows up and now they're a 30 year old woman. Mm -hmm. uh, well, yeah, now you're now you're kind of in the age where like. We're not as concerned. We don't care as much. So you've got to figure that out on your own. And then you get to be where you're 80. And then again, it's like, oh, well, now we care again mm -hmm. because this is an old woman and she can't take care of herself. Care about them the whole time. Yeah. Well, and that's, the, that's why I love to see it, uh, spe specialized organizations like Spark that is focused only on stalking because we mm -hmm. also have Rain that's focused on sexual assault. We have yes. domestic violence organizations. And that's when I did that fellowship, it was like I worked with older adults, but there were some people that worked with the unhoused population or people, you know, refugee communities, things like that where you can't, I can't solve every problem all the time, but this very specialized training, I can help at least it, say, here's where you can fit into this. I know that stalking is not your number one concern all the time, but as a judicial officer, this may be some things that you can look out for. Mm -hmm. So and I think, it, I mean, yeah, it all intertwines and overlaps. Yeah. Like if you have domestic violence, there's a good chance stalking is involved. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's an S people escalate. So it's often the first thing, the first sign that something's going on. Absolutely. In an interview at the time, Debbie told the Modesto B. Patrick had one mission and one mission only, that if he couldn't have my sister, no one would have her. Later, Patrick's father, Royce Kennedy, told reporters that he was sorry for the Clinky family and that Patrick just snapped. Detective Tony Silva called it a very depressing case. Peggy's friend Lisa Landolfo told the Modesto B. This has been their worst fear and mine for some time now, and we're all just devastated. Well, Royce, I don't think Patrick just snapped. I think no. he had been like this for quite some time, and um, your own son said that you probably would have been the target instead of Peggy. 
Yeah, and it's to me the least you could do would have been to offer the proper respect to the situation and either shut the fuck up or say, you know, I'm devastated. You know, do take a, a page out of the parents of a mass shooter kind of playbook of like, yeah. I am devastated that my child has created this dis- destruction and there's no words I have. But to be like, well, listen, he just snapped, okay? And it's like a person who has spent almost every one of his waking hours for the past several years making this woman's life a living hell and before that spent many years making his ex-wife and young daughter's life a living hell and I'm sure he wasn't just a peach before that I don't think that's a snap my dude that is Mm -hmm. that is a person who has been enabled by their family not to take responsibility for their actions and to write it off as just a little mental health snap and that's uh, Sparks literature says the vast majority of stalkers do not have significant mental health diagnoses it is not oh well this is just a thing that you know people that have they've gone off the deep end and snapped and have done it no there are people who engage as a, a behavior that has not been trained out of them mm-hmm. by either they think it's okay they yes. think that they're it's their right yeah i mean it's absolutely. it's like incels like it's their right mm-hmm. that they own this woman and she mm-hmm. owes them something because of no reason just some fucked up thing in their head it's um he he had been this way for uh, a long long decades. time decades yeah. yeah so to say it was snapped i found this really offensive yeah it's it's minimizing it once again yeah, incredibly although she was devastated by what happened to her sister debbie realized early on in her grief i decided you know what knowing peggy's personality Peggy would have been on a cell phone at my funeral trying to take action, trying to make something good come out of something so tragic. In the days following her sister's murder, Debbie happened to turn on the Today Show as a segment on stalking aired. She searched online and contacted the Stalking Resource Center, now known as the Stalking Prevention Awareness and Resource Center, or SPARC. Debbie wrote an email to the center explaining that she wanted to share Peggy's story in a way that would help law enforcement officials across the country address stalking in a more serious and effective way. It's the love of a sister and, you know, like, I'm not going to let her death be in vain. I'm going to turn this into a way to help other people. And she has. I mean, Debbie and Dana and Spark have helped countless people. It's an incredible thing to watch that in that or even in those early moments of grief of like, yeah. I'm I'm going to turn it this way. And I loved when we asked her kind of like, you know, if somebody was in your position and she's like, there's no right way to grieve. And just because you've had something heinous happen to you and you don't go on a lecture circuit and become a, a speaker, mm-hmm. that's OK. That is just how she's chosen to honor. And and just man, Googling her name, the amount of articles that come up of pl- different places she's sp- gone on to speak at, whether it's, you know, on Capitol Hill to try to get laws passed all the way down to, you know, speaking at high schools, colleges, whatever. There is nothing more effective than, like you said, putting a face to that action and and saying this is not a tag on crime. This is a thing that needs to be addressed in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Having someone speak to you just about stalking in general is going to be informative and might hit home, but having the sister of a stalking victim who was brutally murdered stand in front of you and share her story and her family's story and what that was like. If you don't walk away from that changed and wanting to do something to enact change, 
there's something deeply wrong with you. Yeah, I'm concerned. No, yeah. I think it's uh, it's way, way, way more impactful than, mm-hmm. and I think it is because people are like, oh, we're going to get a lecture versus I'm going to give you the respect of my attention to honor your story and your sister's story. And because of that, I think the, the lessons hit a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Sinisterhood, we'll be right back. Even though there were laws against stalking on the books in both California and New Mexico at the time of Peggy's murder, they were ineffective as the system failed to enforce them in an urgent manner. Stalking had only been recognized as a crime 13 years earlier. The first stalking law in the country was passed in 1990 after actress Rebecca Schaefer was killed by an obsessed fan before five other women in Southern California were stalked and murdered by their intimate partners. The state took action in response, passing a law that legislators described criminalizes the repeated harassment or following of another person in conjunction with a threat. And California is enforcing the law aggressively. Soon, 30 more states followed suit, sadly in each case spurred to action by the murder of a woman by her stalker. Criminal laws usually focus on a single act, like assault or murder, while stalking laws focus on a course of conduct in an effort to prevent stalkers from claiming their gestures are innocent. Similar to criminal charges of conspiracy, prosecutors must show an ongoing course of conduct to charge a stalker. Even where a prosecutor is unable to prove a course of conduct, stalking is often comprised of multiple behaviors that are crimes on their own. In that case, a prosecutor can and should address the criminal behavior, whether it is via threats, harassment, computer fraud, invasion of privacy, or similar acts. If the stalker uses a third party, like a friend or a private investigator, the stalker can still be charged under traditional complicity or conspiracy theories. And the training from Spark is excellent for prosecutors on deciding from a strategic perspective whether you have sufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt all the elements of stalking, where you might have them dead to rights, red-handed on, you know, hacking into somebody's email or Facebook or breaking into their house and taking things or damaging their property, where all of those underlying behaviors are comprising, they make up this whole stalking case. But if you, for some reason, you know, maybe you can't quite prove it which we'll get to here in a minute. If you can't quite do that, it's not like the prosecutor goes, well, can't prove a stalking case. Sorry. It's they yeah. really urge like, let's find creative ways to hold these people to account. So they have some charge on their record, at least. And maybe you can kind of start flagging them so they're not able to, you know, travel across state lines with guns. It reminds me of the recent true crime headlines where we discussed the man that attacked the judge while he yeah. was being sentenced and then the later judge when he was being sentenced for those crimes i mean the laundry list of things that they were able to or charged yes come up with because they it they the judge was one of their own and they don't take kindly to that so we see that there are situations where you can pull out 14 charges under one act so they just stack up and they get the biggest penalty possible so why doesn't that happen to every for everyone? Yeah, for cases like this. And that's a good question of, you know, when you can compound charges or you say this is uh, I was reading through a ton of case law on this one. And, you know, there's instances where, you know, a stalker would send 
one message in the morning, one message in the afternoon, and one message in the evening, and was on a protective order. And a really aggressive uh, prosecutor said, that's three violations of the protective order. And he goes, well, I sent all three messages in one day. That's really only one. And they said, nope, you had plenty of time. You were at a fork in a road where you could choose to continue to contact this person who's blocked you and told you to stop or to say, you know what, I'm under a protective order, I have to stop. And you chose three separate times. You know, it was like three or four hours in between. And so the argument was like, oh, it was one long course of conduct. And fighting to the appellate level and having the the uh, state's office go, nah, we're not letting this person off mm-hmm. and go, no, you were terrorizing. And that, that was a, se- a series of uh, really scary, threatening messages because the uh, woman had patio furniture that they had purchased as a couple. They had gotten divorced and her ex-husband was stalking her and he had, she had posted a photo on social media sitting on this patio furniture and it was like, oh, I see what you're doing. Da, 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 da. So it's again showing they know where you are, what you're sitting on, who you're with and arguing, well, those weren't threatening messages. And it's like, yes, they were. <laughs> so I, there are opportunities that if you want to be, and, and I think for or from a broad-based like crime prevention perspective, given the escalation of these criminal th- these actors to homicide eventually, and also even if they don't kill this victim that they're stalking when they move on to someone else, absolutely as hard of a prosecution as possible to go. We don't do that in this jurisdiction, mm-hmm. and we yeah. don't take it lightly. And like Dana said, oftentimes the only reason a stalker stops stalking a victim is because. They move on to another victim to find somebody else. So it's not. And she also said that behavior doesn't just stop. No, you don't just like stalk someone. And then like, that's the only time you ever do it. You know, I mean, once you've gone down that road, it says a lot about what you're capable of and like how just you work. Yeah. How they function for sure. Mm -hmm. These laws help, but the specific language used in the laws has proven to be a tricky thing to get right. In some instances, the laws required a threat, something stalkers could inform themselves about and maneuver around. While some actions by stalkers were clearly illegal, death threats, phone harassment, trespassing, and property damage, scholars argued that something simple, like leaving roses on a doorstep, is a constitutionally protected action. That means the laws have to be drafted broadly enough to cover the many behaviors in which stalkers engage. But like all laws, they also have to withstand challenges to their constitutionality. What seems like a simple gesture can often indicate something deadly when it is part of a course of conduct by the stalkers. Those seemingly simple gestures often escalate, with one study showing 76% of female victims of intimate partner homicide had been stalked by their killers. 89% of those homicide victims who had previously been abused by their partners had also been stalked during the year preceding their deaths. Still, convicted stalkers often use the First Amendment as grounds for an appeal in their cases. These decisions leave stalking victims vulnerable, while legislatures must redraft laws and law enforcement must find other avenues to protect victims. Even 33 years after the first stalking law was passed, those challenges continue. In 2023, the conviction of a man for stalking a Colorado musician was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. Billy Ray Counterman was sentenced to four and a half years in prison for stalking Denver-based country musician Coles Whalen with thousands of Facebook messages indicating he knew where she lived, 
what car she drove, and who she was spending time with. He described tapped phone lines and told her in one post, I'm currently unsupervised. I know it freaks me out too, but the possibilities are endless. She blocked him again and again, but each time he would create a new account and contact her again. The stalking forced her to cancel appearances, begin carrying a gun, and even move out of state. Waylon got a protective order, and Counterman was convicted of stalking in 2021. He appealed his case on First Amendment grounds all the way to the Supreme Court. In 2023, the High Court overturned Counterman's conviction and restarted the trial process at the state level. In a majority opinion written by Justice Kagan, the court held that a stalking conviction cannot stand without proof that the actor demonstrated a subjective, conscious disregard of a substantial and unjustified risk that his repeated, objectively terrifying communications would cause serious emotional distress. Now, let's all just uh, <sighs> brace ourselves for the breakdown of this. So the TLDR is this person was a musician, Coles Whalen, and on Facebook, she started getting messages from a person who's she, she didn't know who they were and escalated to, was that you in the white Jeep? Very mm. specific. Oh, mm -hmm. who are you with at coffee? Hey, he says, uh, um, I've had tapped phone lines before. What do you fear? So have you tapped my phone lines now? Mm -hmm. Thousands of messages. And every time she blocked him, it'd be someone new. And when she finally figured out that he had been, this is going to shock you. Your jaw's going to be on the floor. He had been arrested for threatening women with bodily harm before, including threats to, quote, put your fucking head on a sidewalk and bash it in. And, quote, oh rip your throat out on site. She contacted law enforcement, got a protective order. So that's more than a lot of stalking victims even get a protective order, much less he's actually actively charged with stalking under the Colorado statute. Then he appeals it on First Amendment grounds. And if you ever wanted um, to get your heart, you need to get your blood pressure up really high, like a cartoon where your face turns all red and then you blow your, your eyes top. pop out of your head. Yeah, yeah. I was screaming in my car listening to the oral arguments in this case because um, Chief Justice Roberts, man, he's got a tight five on how funny stalking is. And if you got to mm. listen to the counterman uh, uh, oral arguments, he goes, are you kidding me? One of the messages Billy Ray Counterman sent was, staying in cyber life is going to kill you. Come out for coffee. You have my number. He also would say, like, I'm going to the store, babe. Do you need anything? It just shows that this person is, like, does not have a grip of reality. And they're you blocked unhinged. Him. No, and yeah, they're, you blocked him. they clearly, like, are following her. They know where she is. They know who she's spending time with. It's yeah. terrifying. This lineup of dumb bitches in black robes, which is what I'm calling the Supreme Court, Chief Justice Roberts is like, staying in cyber life's going to kill you. <laughs> well, I can't promise I haven't said something like that. <laughs> and the gallery laughs. And he's like, what does that even mean? I guess he's like, these kids these days need to get off the internet. And he's Bro, like, <laughs> this ain't the time. If you're trying to work out material, go find an open mic. This is a woman's life on the line. Yes, it is. Can you imagine to have the highest court in the land, the chief no. justice of the highest court in the land, repeating your stalker's messages and being like, <laughs> can you guys believe this one? <laughs> he also is like, come out for coffee. In what world could that ever possibly be threatening? I'm sorry. 
well, how about if it's a person you blocked 16 times and they sent you 1,000 messages over the course of several or months? Or a man that told another woman he was going to rip her throat out on sight or bash her head into a curb. Yes, what? somebody that's already been arrested for this before. But don't worry. Count Billy Ray's attorney, John Elwood, he got into it and he was like, <laughs> you know, my mother would routinely tell me to drop dead as a child, but, uh, you know, I, I was never in fear of that. The trivializing of this. The audacity of men to act like they fucking have a clue. No clue. When it comes to stuff like this. And that's, I will say that's not all men because uh, one in six men will be stalked at some point in their lives. So it's not one in three women. So it's, you know, I mean, it, it does happen. But you see all of these men just minimizing it and trying mm-hmm. to relate it back to something your mom hilarious your mom going like drop dead. I mean, that's like, oh shut up. I'm gonna kill you if you say something like that. That's one hundred percent different and in a different tone, context, everything, than a man that has repeatedly shown he is not gonna take no for an answer from this woman that he has never even met, mm-hmm. but he thinks they're in a relationship. Yeah. You fucking moron. Yes. You fucking idiot. Somebody get a gavel and just smack them all over the head with it and knock some sense into them. Yeah, and that it, it, Chief Justice Roberts conveniently left out those were one of thousands of messages and was like, come out for coffee. That's like a nice thing. What are you going to like punish? Cancel culture is going to punish everyone. Why don't you just do it? And then maybe he'd stop if you just went. Come on, he might be a good date. But don't worry, it's not just the men. Justice Amy Coney Barrett she's like this um, is why people hate america yeah for sure absolutely they're a big part of it she's like what if a college professor were to give a lecture about just how vicious it was to be in the jim crow south and puts up behind them on a screen a picture of a burning cross and reads aloud some threats of lynching that were made at the time and black students sitting in the classroom you know they interpret this lecture as a physical threat because they don't understand it I'm gonna let those. I'm gonna let that fart of an idea hang in the air. (laughs) One of those is a you're describing a college class that people have signed up for to learn the history of something. In context, yes. Another is a situation where the person did not ask for any of the the you're. Bitch, this is not even apples and oranges. This is like like apples and a Toyota Camry. We're not even in the same fucking universe of what you're talking about. She like went off on this and I was like, did the the audio glitch? Is this a different case? No, she's just that stupid. And they take it and the idea, especially Barrett, Gorsuch, and Thomas, we're about to get to you, Thomas. But old Gorsuch pipes up and he's like, yeah, if you're a professor, you got to give trigger warnings nowadays. What do we do in a world in which reasonable people deem things harmful, hurtful, or threatening, and we're going to hold people liable willy-nilly for that? Because the issue here is that Billy Ray Counterman's actions were held to a standard of a reasonable person, which a mens rea standard, that's the lowest one. So it goes like the lowest one is like reasonable person negligence, then reckless, then knowing, and then intentional. And so they were kind of like, what if someone doesn't even intend it? Reasonable people nowadays aren't even reasonable. Professor Marianne Franks of George Washington Law School, I was listening to an interview. And she goes, it sort of delves into like a kids these days kind of an argument. Mm-hmm. And Gorsuch is like, you know, people aren't reasonable it's snowflakes. anymore. Snowflakes. You bunch of snowflakes. Oh. Why don't you toughen up? 
none of this is threatening. Just, yeah. j- you know, just yeah. chill out. Yeah. And that's when Justice Thomas pipes in the audacity of that man to speak ever, ever, given how fucking corrupt he is. He goes, the fact that he's still even around is so heinous and unbelievable. Oh, it's absolutely batshit. The fact that people that he has ruled in their favor, paid for his kids tuition, paid for him to go on trips, paid his wife and literally wrote in an email. But, you know, make sure she's like not on the books because we'll get in trouble for this. And like he is purposefully not disclosed stuff. And the fact that it took them to just now come up with like a non-binding sort of ethical thing. But Justice Thomas is like, we live in a time when everything is hypersensitive. Everybody's hypersensitive about everything nowadays. Bitch, be hypersensitive. We should be able to tell people or uh, their pubic hairs on a diet coke can and everybody should be okay with that speaking of yes hypersensitive when that happened he's like this is a high-tech lynching i'm sorry you be incredibly accused of sexual assault not to mention if we're trying to talk about also everybody laughing it off and it yes. becoming like a punchline on snl a joke just like the same with the menendez brothers it was all during that same time yes and if you want to talk about hypersensitive why don't you call your buddy brett who literally sobbed and was like i like beer okay like in his confirmation <laughs> hearings and anyway and all of them Justice Alito made a comment like, you can't talk about our ethics. It's one thing if you want to disagree with our opinions, but it's over the line. These bitches are the most hypersensitive when they need to be hypersensitive, fucking ethical issues, but they're not. So to hear this obscene amount of it was completely missing the mark, missing the other thing that I'm really sad about, too, because nobody's innocent here, because as they laughed at this, Kagan didn't say nothing. Justice Jackson didn't say nothing. Justice Sotomayor didn't say nothing. Like, you have to speak up in a when you hear this happening actively right Mm -hmm. next to you that a victim is being laughed at. And I think it was uh, in the amicus, um, the amicus podcast, they brought up an old case where a young woman had been strip searched and the court had laughed at her. So, and in that case, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was like, that's what I was just about to say. Visibly like, uh-huh. RBG, we need you back. <laughs> or, you know, somebody with a backbone like that. But mm-hmm. the court really, the kind of issue with this is that Counterman argue, argued to get away from the obscenity of the, the, it was just so offensive, this laughing at a stalking victim after she had been through so much. And Billy Ray Counterman by then had like pretty much served his sentence. So that's even more horrifying and to hear that he is a repeated stalker like they often are but he they argued that it cannot be criminally prohibited unless the government can prove that the stalker intended to terrify their victim or kind of knew their actions were reasonably likely to terrify their victim and did that's subjective how do you know the mental state i mean that becomes a he said she said thing he can be like i didn't know I, i i didn't think that was i was asking her for coffee and that's the problem, too, is the more is the, Professor Franks was like, you know, the more delusional the stalker, the more dangerous this can become. The state of Colorado offered, uh, argued our statute says we just have to prove that the stalking would be terrifying to a reasonable person in light of all the circumstances. And they were sort of supported by stalking experts, DV experts, while Counterman was supported by the ACLU, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, FIRE, which is a a civil liberties First Amendment organization. So I can see where you this case to me is not the one. And there was a previous case in 2015 where it also involves stalking and harassment. That guy, uh, they did not address the First Amendment issues in his case. It did go all the way to the Supreme Court. His conviction was overturned. He was let out and would, I'm going to shock you. You better hold on to your britches. Did you know he did it again? He immediately started stalking the prosecutor, his ex-wife, his ex-girlfriend. Yeah. 
it's almost like they they won't stop. Yeah, that guy that got he he was went to the Supreme Court was his conviction was overturned and he started posting, "I am a First Amendment hero. You're welcome. I am a hero for free speech everywhere." Immediately starts talking again. Everywhere. Good news is he's back in jail for twelve years. So so the court basically said with Counterman, you know, it has to at least be a recklessness standard. But yeah, you you see these stalkers, they get they just come out and do it again. So. The Counterman case, the Supreme Court said kind of speech is not completely free if the government is going to at all encroach on free speech like it does with defamation, words that incite a riot, things like that. There has to be some kind of standard, and the very minimum standard is recklessness. So a lot of articles at the time kind of said the Supreme Court just made stalking legal and it made a really nasty decision, I think, and it kind of made certain stalking laws weaker. But Spark really warned against a kind of a defeatist attitude when discussing this case because you don't want to say the, the headline is the Supreme Court made stalking legal. A stalker reads only the headline and is like, cool. And even if yeah. it isn't truly legal, they have now engaged in something. Counterman only addresses speech-based stalking. So he never followed her, left flowers, went to her house, any of that. So in cases of speech-based stalking, prosecutors in every state just have to make sure that they establish that the perpetrator had some understanding that their speech might be viewed as threatening. The majority of U.S. states and jurisdictions, their statutes already include that. The Colorado statute just included a little bit lower mens rea of the negligence, kind of more objective. And the recklessness standard, uh, it sparks training materials was great and said, like, you can prove that recklessness by, you know, the stalker tried to hide their identity by getting new online accounts. Mm -hmm. And so like you obviously knew that she was feeling threatened because Mm -hmm. she's not going to answer messages from you. So you made a fake account or Or at least at the very least, she didn't want to talk to you and yeah you know like get a fucking clue yeah and it's she's, like, she's not interested if somebody blocks you and you continue to message them you should be reasonably uh, you should be aware that your actions are reasonably likely to threaten that person and it actually mm-hmm. did threaten them and you know they said continuing behavior after not uh being a, a victim telling them outright please stop contacting me you are frightening me block after that and not engaging any further, then I think, at least according to Spark, you know, they kind of said prosecutors should be able to use that information and stalking statutes that don't currently include at least that next level of mens rea, because it's it doesn't have to be all the way up to intentional or even down to knowing. It just has to be that they were reckless and they disregarded like this, my actions and behavior are going to make that person feel threatened. And like they said, the vast majority of stalkers don't have significant health mental health diagnoses but even when offenders do prosecutors can still prove recklessness intent whatever by that same thing consciousness of guilt they they may have a mental health diagnosis but they still understand right from wrong they still had that branch in behavior Mm -hmm. you could either continue messaging after she blocked you or not you chose to continue and you knew she had blocked you therefore you know and you should know that this should be threatening for her Mm -hmm. because people don't block people you know unless they have a reason so You know, it it addresses this type of language called true threat language uh, that the First Amendment, because true threats, we don't want people to be making those willy nilly. But I think the complete buffoonery of the fucking oral arguments that turned into like snowflake cancel culture slash also just Chief John Roberts headline zanies like it was the most... (laughs) 
I mean, it's just like, take this fucking seriously, man. People yeah. get killed. It is called fucking homicide in slow motion for a reason. And to just be like, some lady got a text message and got her panties in a twist. It's like, this isn't a joke, man. You should be embarrassed and you owe her an apology. You owe all stalking victims an apology. Every time I hear something like that, I want to ask that person, what if this was your daughter? Or yeah. what if this was your mom or your sister? Like, would you have the same callous, just dismissive approach? LOL. And often, and it's usually, no, they, I mean, Mm-mm. they, of course, you know, I mean, until you're put in that position, you can't really say if they are put in that position, then you see, oh, all of a sudden now it matters because it affected me. Well, try and think of it like that all the time. You know, I mean, right. you're you're there not just to uh, serve and protect or uphold the law when it benefits you. It's supposed to be for everybody. And you're supposed to consider those points of view. And I think that's what this case massively misses because – for all her great writing, Justice Kagan's opinion really goes through like, we have to be concerned about the chilling effect on speech. And that's any First Amendment case, the, the you know, you kind of want to weigh and balance when the government's going to step in and say you can't speak. You don't want to, if you have a political speaker that says, we need to go to the Supreme Court and whack them on their heads with their gavel and tell them, well, you're really not going to go to the Supreme Court. We're comedians. It's obviously not, you know, they don't let you in anyway, whatever. You have your gavels <laughs> and you you have your gavels and you use them for double banging during Judge mm-hmm. Christie only. They are not to be used for whacking Supreme Court justices, even those that deserve it. But the idea that because the true threat standard is recklessness that or would have been the lower negligence standard that somehow you would be like, well, I can't even joke in today's society. I can't even mm-hmm. joke about hitting just- Justice Chief John Roberts in the head <laughs> with a gavel or I'm going to go to jail is – I think is ridiculous and it massively misses this idea that like we can't chill the speech of stalkers. Their fucking speech is worthless. I don't find value in sending literally like 1500 messages to a country music artist being like, is that you in the Jeep? Do you want to go to coffee? Do you want to go get groceries? Hey, what are you wearing today? Are you with your friend? That is not valuable speech that I'm concerned about chilling. I'm fucking fine with chilling it. The speech that was really chilled in this case was Cole's Whalen speech was the victim in this Mm -hmm. case who was a musician who can no longer perform concerts, who can no longer make records, who can no longer do personal appearances, that you have now truly chilled valuable speech, which is an artistic contribution. It's one of the highest forms of speech that we want to protect. But because statistically stalking victims are women, it's almost like the court doesn't give a fuck. Yes. Yeah. And it is very sad that due to all of this she gave up her dream of, yeah. of music because she was so terrified. And and you think, okay, finally he's been arrested. Finally he's been convicted. And then you go to the Supreme Court and you get laughed at. I mean, there's yeah. just it, – it's the fact that women facing this get laughed at is disgusting. But all that to say, the headlines – were just I don't want anybody to be misled by the headlines that oh stalking is now legal it created a different standard but thankfully most states already have that standard in it and the ones that don't prosecutors are being made aware and again sparks training is great for that so hopefully uh whatever statute it is near you is uh is safe and at least is being implemented in a way that will maintain the illegalities for stalkers Sinisterhood, we'll be right back. Ongoing legal issues like these highlight the need for the outreach and advocacy work of organizations like Spark and speakers like Debbie. 
In the early days after her sister's murder, Debbie worked alongside Congressional Representative Heather Wilson from New Mexico to lobby for greater awareness by sharing Peggy's story on a national scale. In July of 2003, just six months after losing her sister, Debbie testified before Congress alongside Mark Sparks. That same day, Representative Wilson introduced a congressional resolution that would establish January 2004, the one-year anniversary of Peggy's death, as National Stalking Awareness Month. Debbie said at the time that she hoped increased awareness would lead to a more uniform response from law enforcement officials across the country. In 2005, one of Peggy's friends worked with the California State Legislature to pass Peggy's Law. Patrick had used a private investigator to obtain Peggy's location, and the new statute was designed to address that. Signed by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, Peggy's Law made it a misdemeanor for anyone targeted by a domestic violence restraining order to try to locate the victim by hiring a private investigator, using a friend or relative, or any other third-party means. And uh, sadly, in that uh, article that it was announcing Peggy's Law was like, not only private investigators, but sometimes stalkers will manipulate their new partners into going into domestic violence shelters to try to find their ex Mm -hmm. or these, you know, saying, oh, well, she owes me some money. So can you just help me just go up and see if that's her? And Mm -hmm. I'm glad that 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 is also criminalized on its own. Absolutely. Driven by the grief of losing her sister, Debbie has since become one of the nation's leading speakers on the subject of stalking and continues to work with nonprofits and government leaders to advocate for stalking victims. National Stalking Awareness Month has been held annually every January for 20 years now. Its purpose is to increase the public's understanding of the crime of stalking. Recent studies show that every year, 13.5 million people in the U.S. are victims of stalking. One in three women and one in six men are likely to have a stalker at some point in their lives. According to Spark, the average stalking case lasts two years, although they can sometimes span the victim's entire lifetime. Over 80% of the time, the stalker knows their victim, and 40% of the time, it's their intimate partner. The stalking statutes have now been enacted in all 50 states, U.S. territories, many Indian tribes, as well as in many other countries. There is also a federal stalking statute punishable by five years up to life in prison, depending on the severity of the stalker's behavior. However, the recent Supreme Court decision shows there is still so much work to be done to advocate for victims of a crime that Supreme Court justices laugh at while experts describe as homicide in slow motion. If you or someone you know is being stalked, help is available. For resources and information on your rights, contact the Victim Connect Resource Center at victimconnect.org or 1-855-4-VICTIM. If you're interested in learning more about stalking awareness or would like training or materials on stalking prevention, visit Spark's website, at stalkingawareness.org. Links to this information are available in our episode description. So what do we think? It's one of those where, you know, 2003 was so long ago, but it clearly not. really not. Yeah. You know, 
to see. Yeah. And, and, and that's why we still, you know, 20 years on of National Stocking Awareness Month, it's still necessary. And I'm, I'm actually glad that this is coming out on the last day of Stocking Awareness Month because it, it shouldn't stop at January 31st. No. Like we got to think about stocking February 1st and every other day thereafter. And it's we, we all can't solve every single problem. But in whatever capacity we're in, I think we can find where we can do the good that we can do in the to the extent we can do it, where you have a colleague at work going, man, my ex-boyfriend left another note on my card. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, you know, you might want to talk to somebody about that. That could mm-hmm. be considered stalking. And, you know, I'm not trying to make anything of it, but there's you have some rights, you know, just it, the smallest bit of, uh, you know, people using Dana brought up like using stalking is like, oh, I'm going to totally stalk them later of like just being yeah. aware that like that's not like, oh, that's going to trigger someone and hurt their feelings. But, oh, you've now kind of used it in the common parlance and deal like brought it down in the se- severity. I mean, you're kind of watering down the yeah. definition of it by throwing this word around when it's not a word that should be just casually tossed around as like a, a joke almost. You know, it's a yeah. serious crime, it's a serious offense. And yes, being like a safe space for people mm-hmm. that in your life that might be going through something like this and informing them, like a lot of people don't know. I didn't. These yeah. things. Yeah. The, they they don't know the language or what is going on to, to name it and claim it. So, you know, being that person that can reach out to someone and let them know like, hey, just FYI and, and sending some resources and also speaking up when you see stuff. And mm-hmm. that is especially goes for our Supreme Court justices and lawmakers. Like, not, but also for just everyday civilians, you know, not you know, like joking or minimizing or if some guy, you know, is talking about like, well, yeah, she broke up with me, but I still got her location on my phone so I can track her wherever, you know, like not just letting stuff like that slide, calling people out on that kind of behavior. Yeah. Being like, really, man, that's gross. Like we don't like just leave her alone. You know, Mm -hmm. I think oftentimes it's sad, but that social pressure is even as effective as law enforcement. You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. that might piss them off, but having friends, family, loved ones that are like, yo, you need to do something because this is not a healthy way to interact with people. And on the flip side, younger people, you know, someone said, uh, I think, I can't recall if it was Debbie or Dana, kind of like the younger generation going, he texted me like 30 times in a row. Mm -hmm. Like he must really like me. And it's like, no, that's, if you didn't respond, that's kind of, uh, inappropriate behavior. controlling. That's not healthy. Yeah. Yeah, That's not a healthy love. And like, what does healthy love look like and things like that. So just finding the, the part we can play and, uh, especially if you have any reach in the law enforcement community system or victim sport, v- victims advocacy. That is one thing that I think has come a long way since 2002, 2003 is having d- crime victims compensation funds mm-hmm. and having victims advocates who are able to say, hey, this is something you can access. If you need to move, you have the funds to be reimbursed for that. Things like that. Like, you're not like you shouldn't feel stuck in the place that your stalker knows you're at because and your abuser knows you're at be, just because you don't have the means to move Mm so um you know anything we can do i think uh is will help change the conversation on stalking and especially given just this 
how often it happens. Yeah. Like I said, I didn't know. I was like, oh, I, I just thought I had a crazy ex. It's like, no, you were technically stalked when all of that happened. And um, knowing that the, the laws are still intact, despite this Supreme Court ruling that it is not legal to stalk, it is, a, I think, was a blow to victims, but at least insofar as like the laws were kind of already prepared for it. And just you as a lawmaker go, okay, I guess we have to restock, you know, re, uh, rewrite our stalking legislation. That's okay. And being mm-hmm. responsive and making sure your lawmakers are responsive. So thanks to folks like Debbie for oh, being yeah. able to, you know, take that broken heart and make it into something that has made such a big difference. And for sharing her sister's story, not just with the whole world, but specifically with us, I feel very honored that for we're sure. able to chat with her and, and benefit from Dana's uh, knowledge and awareness on this and uh, have another organization that we can, you know, keep top of mind and, and help work with as we continue on. Yes. Thank you to both of them so much. And go to the Sparks website, stockingawareness.org. There's um wealth of information on um, just how to inform yourself, but also if you want to have someone come out and, you know, speak to, your organization. You don't have to work in law enforcement. You Mm -hmm. can just be in a corporate job to have, you know, someone come out and speak to everybody. Like every stuff like this, like there's not a, uh, demographic. It does. I mean, Taylor Swift is her stalker was just let out of jail and he's been arrested three times in front of her New York house in the past five days within hours of being released. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like immediately was let out because he was arrested and went right back. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, and she is arguably the most powerful person in the world. And then you've got people that are just everyday people that are facing the same types of things. So Mm -hmm. you don't have to be, um, you know, a celebrity or in a job where like, it seems like this would happen to inform yourself or have others be informed. Like I think, Everybody should go through training like this and have this type of information. No, definitely. That's why I told uh, Jill, who runs Fearless Dallas, uh, the organization here I'm on the board for, I was like, maybe we can br- do this type of training, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in concert with, you know, because so, they do, all, we do all kinds of training. But uh, I, I even was like, we got to reach out to Spark and get the get the training mm-hmm. for us too, because it, it's to help women kind of get back on their feet after either, you know, a situation that they've been in or they just want a career change or whatever. And just naming it, even mm-hmm. if you, it's not currently happening or very more importantly, naming it while it's happening. I think it's, it's so vital. So thanks. Shout out to, uh, to spark and the good work they do and to Debbie as well. Absolutely. Well, if you like our free episodes, you'll love our Patreon bonus content. You can join for free to see what we're up to next or dive into over 500 hours of bonus content. We've got some special deals going on right now, too, don't we, Heather? Yes, we do. We are offering a free trial, not just join for free, but you can join at any level for a week. Check out all the perks and you can cancel anytime before the trial is over without getting charged. So if you've been debating on whether to join or not, now is the perfect time to try it out. And if you like like it after the free trial, you want to keep it. If you join anytime now through the end of February, annual memberships are 16% off, which is basically like getting two months free. So you buy 10 months, get two months free when you uh, sign up before the end of February. Great Valentine's gift too. Oh, it would Valentine's be gift. Yeah. Valentine's, Valentine's, treat yourself. Mm-hmm. And why, my documentary aficionado friend, why is February the best time to try out Patreon and join? 
We have DocuWary, which I guess I was trying to remember, is this the fourth year we've done it? This is the third. Third year we've done it. Okay. So um, for the whole month of February, every Friday at 2 p.m. Central, you can join us on Crowdcast where we live stream and discuss the documentary that we have watched that week. We have all the documentaries picked now. We have done the past four Academy Award winners since Oscars are coming up soon. We, um, from 2019 to 2022, we have those picked. It is American Factory from 2019, My Octopus Teacher from 2020, Summer of Soul from 2021, and Navalny from 2022. So our first discussion this Friday, February 2nd at 2 p.m. Central. Watch the movie in advance and then log on at 2 p.m. Central to chat with us about 2019's American Factory, which is available on Netflix. Absolutely. And for recent patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show and make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. You can also head to Sinisterhood.com and click shop on the top banner to check out Sinisterhood merch like mugs, t-shirts, totes, stickers, t-shirts, and even clothes for your kiddos. And don't forget, when you sign up on Patreon at the Rolling the Airwaves or Getting Into It tier, you uh, get a year-round merch discount. So check the pin post on Patreon for your coupon code. And right now, we've got tour merch on a special sale. It's like 30% off for all of our 2022 in 2023 tour merch sizes and quantities are limited but if you missed it while we were on tour grab those before we go back out on the road again mm-hmm. we've got so many deals going on in february so many deals this is the time to strike if you've been thinking about it <laughs> there's a there's like stack deals upon deals <laughs> happening right now with discounts and free months and Trials. merch discounts yes so uh please head on over and see uh what strikes your fancy <laughs> And while you're on our website, you can also review the show, follow us on socials, and check out the episode description for sources used during our research. You'll also find fun things like topic-based playlists. Also, patrons get uh, first dibs on live show tickets, including VIP, so it's another perk that you get over there yeah stay signed up so you'll be the first to know you can also follow us on instagram and threads at sinisterhood pod you can like us on facebook at sinisterhood you can watch video versions of our youtube uh video versions of our episodes on youtube or ad free video versions on patreon also check out our tiktok at sinisterhood podcast and order custom video shout outs with cameo valentine's galentine's if you want us to uh, have mcgruff or a corn skull or whatever in that personalized video maybe all of them whimsy yeah the first person that's like, I would like to see Lucifer McGruff, Popple, um, <laughs> Moon Man. They're all right um, here. Uh, Corn Skull. Uh, he misses yeah. you. You could have that guy. He misses you. Oh, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could have that guy telling you whatever you want. Happy <laughs> birthday. Congratulations on the new job. Uh, ha- just a pep talk to yourself. We do a ton of those. So. Mm-hmm. What and with like you said, Valentine's the day of love is coming up. So let us be your Valentine. What a what better way to show the person you love how much you love them than without a horrifying ceramic moon with a mouth that looks like all sorts of things could go inside of it. <laughs> Stop, leave us, leave us, <laughs> Christy. Where you can the nice folks find you on the oh, internet? Yikes. <laughs> I am on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace, and I got a Threads account, everybody, but 
I, I, I haven't posted anything. I just did it because Instagram suggested it. It's also Christy and Wallace. And then on TikTok, I am Christy or GTFO. Heather? I'm on the internet at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. <laughs>